For the last several years, YouTube has been navigating a giant uncharted problem. What do you do when some of the videos on your site contain misinformation? Misinformation that can be harmful, that can damage our democracy on the eve of the election. And then there's the spreading of hate and conspiracy theories and the impact of it all on our kids. Some of these videos have had real consequences. They've radicalized people, inspired violence, and can influence how people vote. In recent years, YouTube has acknowledged this and they've worked hard to correct it. They've put in place significant new policies, taken down tens of millions of these videos, and changed their algorithms to make videos with misinformation a lot harder to find. But YouTube is enormous. 500 hours of new content are uploaded every minute. More than 2 billion people around the world watch YouTube. So moderating it all is incredibly challenging. It may even be impossible. I'm Poppy Harlow, and on this episode of Boss Files, I sit down with YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki. We last had Susan on the show back in 2017, and we talked a lot about her leadership, her personal journey at YouTube, breaking up the Silicon Valley Boys Club, as she wrote in Vanity Fair, all while being a mother of five. Today, though, we talk about how she is navigating YouTube through an era of intense scrutiny and immense consequence. Susan Wojcicki, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me here. YouTube's mission is to give everyone a voice and to show them the world. And you have been called the most powerful woman on the internet. I wonder how you think about this moment, given all of that. This moment, weeks before a consequential election and in the middle of a global pandemic. It's definitely an unprecedented time, and we have thought about, with YouTube, how can we use YouTube for good? Um, With the pandemic, we immediately saw that we needed to get uh, health information out. Um, We've served over 400 billion impressions of health information from local health authorities, um, and also enabled a lot of educational content, um, enabled people to, to laugh and connect. And so I've definitely definitely been seeing it as this is an opportunity to figure out how we can be the most helpful during an incredibly difficult and painful time for everyone. From an election standpoint, we are working incredibly hard to do everything we can to ensure the election integrity. So um, it's just, it's a period of time where we are um, doing, working incredibly hard on and firing on all cylinders to figure out how to be supportive of all the changes that we're all going through. So we'll get to the election in a moment for sure in detail, but let's just begin on the global health crisis and the pandemic and COVID. What do you think YouTube's primary function is during COVID? I'd say twofold. First of all, we were able to serve a huge amount of information very quickly. And you know, when the pandemic first hit, it was hard for people to get all the right information. And so we were able to make sure and connect with all the local health authorities. We worked with 85 different countries, uh, CDC equivalents to make sure that we put out uh, authoritative information. Um, We also ran a big campaign with all of the YouTube creators to encourage people to stay home, to take it seriously. Um, But once people were home, they wanted to be able to uh, laugh and connect with people. Um, find ways to uh, 
fix things in their home or do all these things that were expected of them that never could have done beforehand. Um, so we, you know, we have seen things like a lot more people um, looking for home exercise, meditation, um, home workouts are up almost 350%. Um, homeschooling has doubled. Um, we've served over 3 billion videos um, with beginner in the title. Um, and then just letting people connect, connect whether it's to their local organization or religious group or social group, um, their favorite entertainer. It's so it's been a time of um, where I think YouTube has really played a key role in helping people get through this difficult time safely. It's been a lot of those things for me. It's helped me in 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 pinch moments with my children. It, I certainly exercise a lot with it. I mean, there's a lot that I do on YouTube and watch now and use for our family that I didn't before, for sure. There's also uh, the real issue of of misinformation surrounding COVID, something you guys took action on pretty fast and pretty early and pretty broadly. But there are real-life consequences here. I mean, just in August, the New York Times reported uh, on a patient in New York who actually drank bleach to try to fight off COVID, went to the ER— luckily survived. But those are the real life consequences. And this was after watching a video suggesting that they do that on YouTube. Um, How do you handle something like that? I mean, why could he even see that? Yeah, well, first of all, that video shouldn't have been there. And we have taken a really tough line on on all our policies with regard to COVID. So uh, we've implemented more than 10 different policies on COVID. So anything that would have um, promote any kind of harmful um, cure or anything that would even not be a cure, but just misrepresenting information with regard to COVID, that would be a violation of our policy. Um, we have taken down hundreds of thousands of videos uh, to make sure that we are policy compliant. Um, and I'll say misinformation is something that we have been working on for the last, you know, for years, um, but we've really, really stepped up all of our efforts. And I think that if you look at the work that we've done with COVID, um, a lot of people have seen just how effective we've been in making sure that we are surfacing the right information. So we look at the authoritativeness of the source and with any kind of um, COVID type of information, we make sure that's coming from authoritative sources. And then we put things like information cards underneath it where we link to the CDC or the local health authority in that country. On the content labels that you guys put up, those warnings, I've I've totally seen them. But I think one of the issues is if people don't click through and read it, right, they're still watching the video. They're still seeing it. And with 500 hours of video uploaded every single minute, how do you possibly keep up, right? Well, we do keep up because we have machines and those machines are able to work incredibly effectively. Uh, and so, first of all, we, you know, we have a policy team. They work very rapidly. Um, you know, we work, we're working um, at basically at all times to be as quick as possible in terms of policy to be responsive. But then once we have those policies, our machines kick in. Um, we have a transparency report where we talk about how many videos we've removed. Um, we removed over 11 million videos uh, last quarter. And we talk about the speed that we did that. So over 90% were actually flagged by machines. And that's the way we're able to manage with the high volume of content that we have on the platform. Just the fact that you had to remove more than, I think it was 11.4 million videos in a three-month period because they violated your policies, because they were false, because they were spreading misinformation, hate, et cetera. I mean, what does that tell you about the platform at this point, though, that you had to take 
that many down, and some are still slipping through the cracks. Well, there's also a lot of that that just might be spam. So we actually break down, if you look at the report, what percentage came from hate or harassment or um, any of the different categories. And the biggest category usually is spam. But, uh, you know, I I would look at uh, the, you know, overall we look and we measure and we work incredibly hard to make sure that our platform is as responsible as possible. And we are very incredibly proactive. Um, And I think if you look at a lot of the recent reports that have come from either academics or experts who have studied our platform, they've really like Wired, for example, just came out with a big um, story about the effective work that we've done to be able to make sure that users are getting the right information. I read uh, the Berkeley study as well, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But on the issue of COVID, we are now months away from a vaccine, hopefully an effective vaccine rolling out. And that is also going to bring an onslaught of anti-vaxxer videos. I have no doubt about it. A number of them are already up on YouTube. What are you going to do to fight that outside of, I know that you've demonetized them, but are you going to leave those on on YouTube? Yeah. So, you know, I think that the pandemic has really shown the important role that YouTube plays in public health. Um, and, you know, that's why we went into action in terms of working with all the different public health officials. And so one of the things that we're planning on doing is to work with public health officials and a lot of influencers and key people to be able to make sure that we're getting the word out on vaccine and that we're getting the information that comes from local health officials, but that we're actually making it really digestible that we have influencers getting the information to our users. And, um, you know, we think that by doing a big campaign, that can really make a difference. And so that's one of the things that we plan to be working when it's time. I hear you. And you guys have been out front doing these campaigns, right? Uh, but if you do a campaign and you still have, you know, false, misleading um, videos from anti-vaxxers that can harm people's health and can harm public health, should those remain on the site at all? Are you going to take are you going to take those down? Yeah. So, you know, certainly we, we will um, we'll look at that in terms of our policy development. Like right now, because there is no vaccine, um, you know, we expect this to continue to be an evolving area. But the way we handle this would be looking at a policy and then the removal that would be associated with that. You know, and then, you know, the issue is there's always going to be content that's borderline. Um, and, you know, for borderline content, what we've what we've started to do is or what we've been working on over the last couple of years is we've developed a system where that content um, basically is very unlikely to show up in our recommendations. And we have reduced the uh, the viewership of the borderline content by um, almost over 75 percent in over 30 countries. And that is really making a huge impact. So again, we'll look at the policy, we'll remove stuff that's violative that we think, anything that we think could lead to real world harm or egregious, um, we'll remove, but there's always yeah. gonna be something borderline. Someone saying like, I this happened to me, um, that makes it really hard. Um, and, um, but, but you know, we'll handle that via, um, via how we do our recommendations and surfacing. So you will have information from the CDC, from public health authorities, Mayo Clinic, et cetera. That will be all the information that you yeah. see when you type a query. And I understand, and it's important, and there's been a lot of progress made by you guys in terms of not recommending that stuff. However, the Berkeley study that came out did still find that once a viewer starts watching like a conspiracy theory video, whether it be about COVID, pandemic, for example, they're more likely to still be recommended another one. Is that really something that you can totally prevent or or is it at, at a point where it's like it is what it is and it's still going to happen sometimes? 
I mean, I think there's actually a lot of debates um, and a lot of studies that actually contradict that, uh, that show that you know, we work really hard to always surface authoritative information. So you may go and, and start looking, look, if there is, if there, if you're searching for it um, and there's something that's borderline and you, know, you work hard to find it, um, you know, we'll make sure to put authoritative information around it, um, either below the video um, and that's there right now for all vaccine information or to put it in terms of what you watch next or the other recommended videos. Senator Mark Warner um, sent sent your boss, Google CEO Sundar Pichai, a letter this week. And, and he said that that, you know, the labels, he said, innocuous labels affixed to the bottom of videos don't seem like credible efforts to counter harmful misinformation. Is there more to come on that? Well, I'd say that that is is one solution, but it's one of many, many solutions, right? So, you know, we talk about our policies, how we remove, we talk about how we raise up. So our ranking, our recommendation system, um, our labeling of content. And I, I think our labeling is, is, is effective, um, but it's only one piece of a much, much larger solution. The- we also like... Yeah, go on. But but we have, I mean, I'm just saying we have many other solutions um, in terms of like highlighting, like when you search, you get, um, uh, we'll, we'll put it under search as well. So, um, you know, and, and I think if you look at the usage and how users have engaged with it, we've actually seen really high engagement with what we call information mm-hmm. cards. That's good that you're seeing, seeing that engagement on those. The, it must be odd to have to take down something that the president of the United States has said, but you guys have opted to do that in certain circumstances. You did it with a Fox News interview that he did in August where he claimed that children are, quote, almost immune from COVID-19 because it's just not true. Um, But there are other things the president has said about COVID that aren't true that are still on YouTube. Why? And where do you where do you draw that line? Yeah, Um, so that's definitely a good question. And um, I'll say that Basically, we hold all politicians, um, no matter where they are in the country or what their rank is, to the same standards that we hold everyone else. Um, And so if there is something that is said that is harmful, um, that we think can lead to real world harm, that's a violation of our policy, we will remove it. Um, And so, you know, you can give me some specific examples of things you may have said. um, But a lot of times it's I think it's important to also look that, you know, you may have seen those quotes from. President Trump in a news broadcast, um, meaning that it was covered, for example, in CNN, and there could have been commentary afterwards, maybe questioning what he said or clarifying it. Um, and so, you know, we look at that context too. So, you know, under an educational or documentary standpoint, some of that content we would still allow, provided that the news provider actually provided context in terms of that information. It's very important, and there's a big difference, and you're totally right. And there is news content up there where we're, we, my journalistic colleagues, are fact-checking, right, in real time. But then there's also yeah. press conferences, et cetera, that are up there where, where, where he hasn't uh, been fact-checked. Uh, let's, let's move on, Susan, to an announcement this week from, from Facebook. Facebook announced this week that it will ban QAnon from its platforms. Will YouTube do the same? Um. Well, so we're looking very closely at QAnon, but I would say we already implemented um, a large number of different policies that have helped to maintain that um, 
in a, in a responsible way. So the first thing is, is that the changes that I talked about with regard to our recommendation system um, have already had over an 80% reduction in terms of any of the viewership of that. So, cause a lot of that content would be classified as what we would may say borderline content. Um, we also have already removed a lot of it um, um, in terms of like, hundreds of thousands of videos. Um, because of it could violate other parts of our policies, hate, harassment, um, COVID information. So like a common um, QAnon cons you know, conspiracy theory would be about masks and um, not getting enough oxygen. So that would be a violation of our COVID policy. And so yeah. there's been quite a lot of videos that have been taken down or the views have been reduced. Except this week, I watched two QAnon videos on YouTube. One of them had over 5 million views. The other had over 3 million views. And the FBI says that QAnon is a potential domestic terror threat. So I guess I'm wondering, what is, what is the hesitation to ban it on your platform? What would be the reason not to? Um, you know, I think with every policy, it has to be defined very clearly. Like, it, you know, what does that exactly mean, a QAnon um, group exactly. So, um, so, you know, that's a kind of thing that we would need to put in terms of the policies, um, and make sure that we were super clear. So we are continuing to evolve our policies here. It's not that we're not looking at it or we don't want to, um, make changes that in terms are responsible. But yeah. I think if you look at QAnon, part of the part of it is that it's a grassroots movement. And so you could see just lots and lots of different people who are uploading content that has different QAnon theories um, and conspiracies. And so I think the way to approach it is by actually having the policies um, implemented in the right way. Um, and our platform is very different from how Facebook works. And so I think each of us will take an approach that makes the most sense for our platforms. I, I I hear that. I just I ask because things like you know the PizzaGate conspiracy theory actually led a man to go to a pizzeria in D.C. with a gun. And recently there have been examples of mothers in Colorado and Utah who have followed QAnon direction and gone to try to kidnap their own their own children. So there's just real life consequences here uh, of that. Uh, moving on to the election, the, I'm sure you heard. Like would remove. I mean, we're very proactive in terms of removing it, and I think you'll see us continue to be so. In terms of the election, um, this week, Instagram's chief, Adam Masseri, called the election, quote, a huge test for Instagram. I, I wonder if you think about it that way right now, Susan. We're like three and a half weeks out from the election. Is it a huge test for YouTube? Uh, I would say that we are working incredibly hard. We want to make sure we do everything we can to ensure that our election is um, has the fullest integrity possible. Um, and we are making sure across the board. And, and if I look at what's happening right now at both Google and YouTube, I'd say we literally have thousands of people and teams across the company who are working on different parts, whether that's our policy, our recommendations, how our advertising works. Um, our intelligence desk, our threat analysis teams. And, um, you know, we, you know, we're working incredibly hard to make sure we don't miss anything. Can we talk about about what election night's going to be like and what what the plan is for election night? Uh, for example, this is an election unlike any other, as, as we all know, because of the pandemic, because of mail-in voting, because of all of this, uh, because of the, the president not saying that he will necessarily accept the results of the election. If the president or Joe Biden prematurely declares victory and they or their campaign or someone posts that video on YouTube, will it stay on YouTube or will you take it down? 
you know, it's really hard to talk about um, hypotheticals because we would have to actually look at the video. Um, but, you know, we certainly are going to have very clear guidelines around that. And we're going to focus to to make sure that we have authoritative information coming from sources um, like the AP, for example, that would be uh, having that trusted information. And that's what we will continue to refer people to. Um, but we certainly will look at those videos. And if we think they're violative and they're vi we will take them down. Who, who decides on election night? Like, are you going to be at YouTube headquarters making those calls? Uh, well, I think because of the pandemic, I may not be a, a YouTube at headquarters. Home, um, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> we'll have, we'll have. I mean, we're, we have virtual war rooms um, to make sure that we have all the right people. We can make those decisions very quickly. Um, we have people who are scouting um, the internet. We have um, in, intelligence desks. So, you know, we will have the full set of information and everyone ready to make sure that we are making the right calls. Um, we've also stopped election ads. So as of the night, when the when the election closes, we will no longer be taking any election um, ads. And we think that will actually make, um, that will be a important area for us to ensure the integrity of the election. But ultimately though, is it, is it gonna be, is it gonna be your call? Uh, I mean, we have policies across the board. So we, we look at our policies, we consult with experts when we formulate those policies, and then we look to see um, as a as a group, as a leadership team to understand, like, do those videos meet or not meet those policies? So if a candidate said they won before the election was called by, you know, by, by reliable news outlets, can that video live on YouTube? Um, I mean, we would we would have to look at that. But I think, um, you know, uh, I mean, we'd have to have to look and depend what is said and what's the current situation. The. If, uh, you talked about having sort of a, a war room, if you will, and gaming out possible scenarios for election night. Facebook recently said that that they have they have that as well, and that they are uh, there are some quote break glass options available if there is really an extremely chaotic or worse violent set of circumstances. Are, are you guys gaming that out as well? Do you have break glass options? Um, I mean, we can always, depending upon what happens and where this election goes, um, we can always implement whatever policies we need to implement them extremely quickly um, and make changes. So we have done that in the past um, whenever there has been some kind of major event um, and we see that something in our system is not working. Um, we have done it. So, you know, there are times that we have we have you know completely had to make changes to how our systems work, how our search works, how our recommendations work to be able to ensure the integrity of our information. And if we need to do that, we will do that. Um, we will have everyone on hand. And if we need to make changes to how any of our system works, any part of it, we will do that. I, you did it, for example, after the Christchurch shooting. Uh, sure. It, it, so, uh, so I assume that's what you're referring to. Yeah. I mean, there've been a number of different instances where we may have seen that something in our system breaks, like how our search results work. So we'll implement a change. We'll make a change right there on the spot in terms of how our, how our search works. Um, or we've seen that with recommendations as well. I think the the reason I'm asking and and trying to get an an, an answer on this here is we're a few weeks out from the election and 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 you guys have a lot of power and a lot a lot a lot of people watch you. I mean, two billion sets of eyes around the world. And um, I was struck by the New York Times editorial board piece a few weeks ago. I'm sure you read it. And it was talking about you and your your peers. And the, it, let me just read this and see what you think about it. They said these platforms have consolidated power to control the flow of information to billions of people. The power to judge, which is con 
content, which content is harmful to democracy on election night results with a handful of tech executives. A handful of unelected entrepreneurs are asking a frightened and anxious American public to trust them, to trust that they put the interests of the country over those of their corporations. Why should America trust YouTube, for example, to make the right decisions here? I, I mean, first of all, I would say that you know, if you if you look at YouTube, you know, YouTube is a collection of a large number of different publishers, like CNN, for example, along with you know almost all other cable um, networks, broadcast networks are on YouTube, um, and you know. Our goal is to, you know, you started out with our mission, right, which is to give everyone a voice. So our goal is really to have as many different perspectives out there. Um, but we will um, go and um, make sure that on election night that we are referring to who we think is the most, um, uh, you know, fair, unbiased um, person providing news on it. So that would be something like a wire service. Um, to make sure that that is the information that we're surfacing. Um, so our goal is not that it's us making the decision, but that we're deferring to whoever is an expert in news and delivering that information um, and highlighting that information. And all that information can be up there and is up on YouTube. But there's also, you know, still a lot of misinformation that, that is not taken down. Let me just give you one example. My colleague, Donio Sullivan, uh, went to Minnesota and he reported in Duluth at a, at a rally for the president. And, and two women who were interviewing with him repeated a conspiracy theory claiming that, that Joe Biden was wearing a wire and an earpiece during the first debate. And then they pulled up video on YouTube on their mobile phones to show that conspiracy theory video. And because it was on mobile there, the warning wasn't wasn't there for what they pulled up. And I, I'm just wondering, three weeks out from an election, why is why are videos like that still up there? And it, is there anything you can do about it or that you will do about it? Or or is this just part of what the platform has become? Well, it's hard to comment on a specific video, just um, given given the number of videos um, that we have on our platform. But I can tell you, you know, based on all the different academic studies done by third parties and researchers and us too, is that the information that's delivered and the changes that we've made have made a huge impact. Um, and the responsiveness in terms of the policies, um, what's removed has made a huge difference. Um, you look at things like, you know, there was the misinformation video on Nancy Pelosi. Um, we removed that, you know, extremely quickly. Um, the one that accused her that she was drunk. There have been other um, accusations of, of Joe Biden. You know, he was asleep like that. Those are all things that are violations of our policies um, and we remove. And I think if there's anything that ever becomes, um, uh, you know, if there's a new area, um, you know, we'll make a policy on that really, really quickly to be able to implement that and do what we think is the most responsible solution. What about Russia, um, Susan? It's been reported in the last—I mean, we know Russia's at it again, meddling in this, this election again, just as they did in 2016. They did it on all the platforms. They did it on YouTube with more than 1,000 uh, videos on YouTube alone. They're doing it on Facebook and Twitter now. Is YouTube seeing Russian disinformation again in this election, trying to meddle, interfere with, sway Americans' votes? Well, we, we have— um 
an intelligence desk where we work to try to understand everything that's happening, um, what's happening behind the scenes. We work with different, um, a lot of different experts to be, make sure that they're informing us. Um, and on top of that, we have the threat analysis group at Google that does a number of different research there. Um, we have um, removed a number of times you know, large amounts of coordinated videos that we think are um, in many ways um, providing false information um, coming from different foreign actors. And um, we've been public about that. We continue to do that. We continue to remove the content. Um, we also will label anything that comes from any kind of state media that's on YouTube. It will say, you know, paid for by this government um, to make sure that our users understand that. And so we'll continue to be vigilant. Is Russia doing it right now on YouTube? Um, I mean, we if we see anything, you know, that we think is like a coordinated attack, we that is content that we would remove. Have have you seen it from Russia, like in the last week? Um, I mean, anything that I I mean, I don't think we have anything new to report. But if we do see something, we will remove it. Um, you know, we certainly see like there are Russia sponsored channels. Um, they follow the guidelines um, and we label them as such. And so we are, you know, we certainly are watching very carefully um, across our platform. More from my conversation with Susan Wojcicki after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now back to my conversation with YouTube CEO, Susan Wojcicki. The last time we spoke, you know, at length, Susan, was back in 2017. And so much less was known about all of this than is, than is known now. Um, but since then, you guys have hired 10,000 people to help machines do this work, right? To help take down misleading and false information. And it's, it's a really big step. But as we've talked about, some of the stuff still gets through, right? And there are real-life consequences to it getting through, life-and-death consequences sometimes. I keep thinking about this and wondering if you think about possibly reviewing the content first. Like, why is it that 
you know, you're already saying, you've already said, we don't want bad stuff, dangerous videos out there, right? So we're going to take them down. What about reviewing them first before they get up there so no one ever sees them? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, part of, I mean, you can think about that from a news perspective too. Like, you know, let's say you had really important breaking news that was happening and we told you that there was going to be a two or three hour delay to be able to make that available. I'm not sure. You but know, that's how you different because would- that's actually happening. I guess I, I should have been more clear in my question, but I'm talking about false stuff, lies, dangerous lies. Well, I mean, we would have to remove, we would have to review everything. Right. Um, I mean, sort of. Right. You'd be smaller for sure. I mean, it'd be different. You'd be smaller. You'd make less money, but it might be safer. Um, I mean, look, we we look across um, many different solutions and um, and, you know, we what we have seen is, is that by by using the combination of the machines and the people that we really have been able to make a huge impact. And there definitely would be. You know, if you significantly reduce the amount of content that's on the platform, um, you would actually limit a lot of things. You would limit a lot of commentary, a lot of the diverse voices that I think are really valuable on the platform. Um, a lot of the people who provide, you know, niche information. Um, so, you know, like the, that's sort of been the model of the internet. And I, I believe that, you know, with the changes that we have made in terms of machines, AI, technology, um, and, you know, 10,000 people, we really have been able to make a big difference. It's, it's much uh, better in some respects than it was, for sure. I'm not, I'm not taking away from that. I'm just wondering as a journalist and as a mom who's like, kids will be watching this stuff soon, you know, is the genie out of the bottle? Like, have you guys gotten so big that there's never a moment in time when you're going to be able to get it all down, to get it all off the platform, right? You told The Economist last year, I will solve it. Like, what is solving it? Or is it, is it sort of it is what it is, and we're never going to be able to get all of it down? I mean, I, just looking at the changes that we've made and, and the progress that we've made as a whole, um, I think it, there's no doubt that, you know, we have done an a huge amount of work with regard to responsibility. It's our top priority. I've been really clear that responsibility is our number one priority. And there's really nothing else that will become more important for us. So it's not like, you know, when we look at any of our decisions, we say, oh, like, you know, should we trade off responsibility and like views? It's always clear. Like we put that at the top of everything we do to make sure that we're delivering the right solution for our users. Andy Parker uh, is is a father. I know you're familiar, I'm sure, with who he is. And he lost his daughter, Allison Parker, who was a journalist when she was shot and killed during a live, a live news interview. Um, and you've taken down a number of the videos that show his daughter being killed that were that were uploaded to, to YouTube, but but not all of them. And there are still a number of them on YouTube. I watched some of them as recently again as this week. And I spoke to Andy Parker about this a a few months ago because he's been calling on YouTube and Facebook to get them all off. And and I asked him, what would he ask you, Susan, if he had a chance? Here is is what he said, and I'm just wondering if you could respond on the other side. Sure. I would say, why are videos of my daughter still up that have been flagged for years 
you're you're telling me you re remove you know thousands of uh, bits of content there, and yet the content that that you know it's easy enough to find. You can do it right now. Uh, it's still up. Why? I mean, so anything, any type of moment of death would be a violation of our policies and. You know, we have worked incredibly hard to make sure that we remove it for anyone. I mean, this is a tragedy for any tragedy, any similar situation. We would want to remove all of those videos. Um, we we have looked through them. Um, and, and, you know, again, I'm curious, Poppy, which video you saw. Um, but a lot when I've seen them, like the videos that I've seen have actually come from news publishers where I've actually seen it being coverage of the event that's coming from different news providers, you know, and we allow via an educational documentary, scientific, artistic, it's also called EDSA, like we allow for educational or news. Um, I have not seen any raw uploads that have come um, showing just that, just from the news perspective. So the ones that, that I saw, for example, this week, there have been about six different links and they are people who have recorded the news on their phones, it looks like, and uploaded it with just the moment of, of her being shot, right? And that just loops over and over and over again. And, and as a parent, I can't imagine seeing that. And that gets back to my main question of just, you know, is it so big that it's impossible to get all of this stuff off? Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I mean, I am a parent too. And, you know, I want the best for my children. I want to do the best for other people's children. And we work, uh, we work really hard. That's been a clear policy. We've never actually not had that as a policy. Moment of death has always been a violation of our policies. And, um, you know, and, and we want to do everything we can to make sure that we are removing those videos. And, you know, there can be people like we will see that, that like, and it's been actually horrible for me to see how many people will want to try to just upload, you know, violative content and re-upload it. Um, and there may be moments where it, it, it you know, they re-upload it, um, but we find it again and we, we pull it down. Mm -hmm. On, on Section 230, um, um, Susan, which has gotten a, a lot of attention, and, you know, I think the American people are becoming a little more versed in this, which is, which is really important because it's these 26 key words, right, from, from the 1996 Communications Decency Act that say no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. Essentially, you, tech companies can't be held liable for what is posted on their platform that they didn't create and what you choose to take down, right? There's protection there. Do, do you think that in this moment, is it, is it in the best interest of, of the American people? Oh, I mean, I mean 230 has, um, first of all, 230 has two really important provisions that I think have made, uh, you know, the internet an incredibly useful and diverse set of content for users. So first, it gives us protection to be able to pull down content, right? So, you know, throughout this interview, Poppy, you've asked me numerous times, why haven't we pulled down more content? Um, and mm -hmm. so, you know, that 230 gives us the protection to be able to remove that content. Um, I think, you know, there are different opinions right now um, in our government. Some people would say we pull down too much. Some say we pull down enough, not enough. Um, and, and, but, you know, just having that provision enables us to help keep the internet a safer place. Um, the second thing that the 230 um, provision does, Section 230, is it enables us, it keeps us 
um, from not having liability with the content that is uploaded. Um, and that enables the internet, you know, we talk about it being open and enable a lot of different voices. Um, and that enables the YouTube to be a diverse place for people. So many different voices and creators of all different backgrounds have been able to be found on internet, on the internet that otherwise wouldn't have been. So if you took that away, like think about the internet with no comments, no reviews, um, only just a, you know, a handful of the largest players. And, and I'm not sure that's really, you know, I'm not sure that that is really what we want. Um, I think the internet has brought a lot of different perspectives and, and we hear that across the board in terms of people who have a rare disease or who are able to connect with um, people who have a disability like them or, or a unique interest um, and all that would go away. But it also protects platforms like YouTube uh, from any liability in terms of the videos that it recommends and that it promotes. Why should, why should YouTube enjoy that protection? Well, I mean, just because we just because we don't have that liability doesn't mean that we don't take the responsibility seriously. Responsibility is core to us. It affects our core business. Um, it affects you know everything that we do. Um, but again, you know, I I think the challenge is is that you wind up um, taking away those protections, um, and the internet would just be very different. It would just be a small set of really large content providers. Um, where we review everything beforehand, and there would be so many voices that would be lost. There'd be no comments. There would be no discussion. Um, I mean, when it, and it's not just it's not just you know YouTube. It's it's like shopping and reviews and restaurants and um, parks. I, I I have to think that you know we've we have so much valuable uh, information that has been created and. You know, the U.S. has been a leader in Internet technology. You take something like that away and that's going to have a really profound impact on how the Internet develops. And, you know, potentially it could go other places, um, not in the U.S. And I think that that would be, you know, that would really be a shame to see um, to see the loss of the Internet. And again, like we're I'm open to all, you know, thoughts and ideas about how YouTube can be more responsible and, you know, what thoughts people have about how to implement this, whether they're experts or politicians like. We want to do better. We want to be the best platform. Um, so, but taking away that provision would just have a dramatically negative impact on YouTube and the whole internet as a whole. I, I mean, as Larry Page said about you once, you have a healthy disregard for the impossible. You know, so I, <laughs> I know that you guys are working around the clock on this, um, and 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 I appreciate you taking these these questions about it. Um, they're really important right now, and it's changing as like every single day. But it, you know, I, I just I think a lot about if we're ever going to get to a place where where it's not going to be up there and where it's not going to be so much about you know toxic containment and how do we get it off the site. One area where you guys have made some significant changes is hate hate speech and white supremacists, for example, or Nazi or neo-Nazi groups. Um, is it still allowed within YouTube's community guidelines, is it still allowed for someone to say white people are superior on YouTube, though? Can that still be out there? So we don't allow anyone to say, um, to use any kind of protected group status, whether that's religion or, or race or sexual orientation, um, to justify any kind of um, discrimination, violence. Um, and so, um, 
we have, you know, that, that we basically have always had a number of different hate policies, but what we did was we really tightened it up about a year ago. And that led to a large number of content and changes across our platform and, and removals. And I believe it's incredibly important. We want to make sure everyone can have a, you know, everyone, um, it, we, sh we shouldn't have people who are discriminated for any type of characteristics that they have. But it, but it, is it still allowed for people, can a video still say on YouTube that it just says that full stop, white people are superior, full stop? I mean, I would, I would have to look in, into the, you know, exact set of how our policies work, but but look, if they said, you know, like I can tell you for sure, if they said, you know, white people are superior and like they should like, you know, live apart or they should go to better schools or anything like that, a hundred percent is a violation of our policies. I ask in the context of we're talking after the, you know, the killing of George Floyd in my hometown of, of, of Minneapolis uh, after Breonna Taylor was killed, uh, countless names. Right. And and I, I wonder if you think that. Are you, if you're thinking about YouTube and your, your company in a different context, do you need to be anti-racist, right? Not just against racism, but, but anti-racist, and if that might change any policies. Oh, um, you know, we are, you know, we have, first of all, made a huge commitment to racial justice. Um, and the reason mm -hmm. I'm, I'm like not answering you, you know, exactly on that question is because I really want to, I always want to tell you exactly what the, you know, right answer is. Um, but I know that you know racial justice is incredibly important to us, and we have made so many. Um, you know, first of all, we made a hundred million dollar commitment to be able to raise up Black voices. We made a commitment to look at all of our products um, and policies and to figure out where we can do better. Um, I know we can always do better, and um, you know we have people across YouTube have volunteered. They've come and they've looked at our systems. They've identified a number of areas, um, and we will implement a lot of changes that will come out of this racial justice initiative. So more, more changes are, are coming on that front, it sounds like. Look, I remember, Susan, when you wrote the, the, the really important Vanity Fair piece a few years ago, How to Break Up the Silicon Valley Boys Club, as one of the few women female CEOs in, in Silicon Valley. And there have been improvements made in terms of elevating women in the Valley. We're not nearly where we need to be, but it's improving. Uh, but in terms of black voices and black leadership in big tech companies, it's not where it needs to be at all. How many of your direct reports are are black? Um, I mean, I, I will say, you know, I don't want to be naming like specific people or, or roles or anything, but I do have direct reports um, that and I have really key leaders on our team who are black. And I'd say that YouTube um, while we have a lot more work to do, has worked incredibly hard to make sure that uh, we have good representation and that we've built a culture where everyone feels like they can be successful when they come to work. At, at Google, black leadership is about 2.6%. You've always been one to fight, fight for more. Um, you did it for women. Is it higher or lower than that at YouTube? And where does it need to be? Oh, uh, you know, I don't know if I can go out to go out on the specific numbers, but I, you know, I do believe we're it's higher at YouTube. Um, and, you know, when I got to YouTube in 2014, that was one of the first changes I made, which is I said, we're going to work really hard to build a diverse company. Um, we're going to have multi-year long-term goals on building a diverse company. We're going to measure it. We're going to build a culture associated with it. Um, we're going to provide the support. 
structure and, um, you know, and, and I don't want to say we're done. We have a lot more work to do, but I'm really proud that we have mm-hmm. such a diverse community already. Um, I've seen like, since I've been there, for example, female leadership has doubled. Um, you know, I've seen that all the work that we've put into place have made a difference. Um, you know, and Google, you know, Google has a, has a lot of different initiatives around this as a, as a company as a whole. Um, and YouTube has some that are specific to YouTube. I'm really worried, Susan, about what uh, what this pandemic and recession is going to do to 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 women, like long term. Uh, it's already the data showing us that it is setting back women decades. That many working mothers are the ones who are having to give up their careers because they don't have childcare or their children aren't in school. How big do you think that threat is as a working mother of five? And I get that you and I can afford to have the help we need, but most moms can't. So what is yeah. this going to do to the advancement of women? I mean, I've been really concerned about it, too. And uh, I mean, I I can, you know, sure, guess like it's definitely impacted me. I mean, I can tell you tell you that it, it's just everything is harder during the pandemic. Um, and um, we don't, there just aren't, people don't have the same resources that they used to have. Like a lot of people, schools are closed. Um, you know, what are you supposed to do with your kids when they're not in school and they keep coming and asking you like, oh, my zoom call isn't working or I don't want to be on my zoom call anymore. Right. Or, or like, you know, they have school and it's two hours long and it's done by, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, so I, I think it just is a really it's a really hard time. And I, I believe it's set back women a lot. And, and that's really been a shame to see. Is there a responsibility for companies to, to take major proactive action where the government hasn't on, on this front? Like, you know, most companies don't have childcare uh, built in. And when people, you know, start having, if they have to go, many frontline workers still have to go to work, you know, essential workers. And, and I just, I wonder what you think the role of corporations is in this. Oh, um, I mean, I think we could have a really long conversation about corporations and childcare. Um, I mean, the short answer of the one hour conversation is that it's, it's hard because, you know, companies can be growing and childcare takes time to build out and you may not always have enough support. Um, and so, you know, how do you distribute those spots is really hard. Um, I mean, I just think that this is actually something where the government should be supplying more services for families across the board to enable uh, more services for for kids, high quality child care. Most child care workers, you know, are underpaid. Um, it's really hard for them. A lot of times if they love and really want to be a child care worker to do that and continue to earn a living. So it's just it's an area we know that, you know, zero to five are the most important years for kids. And uh, I think it's just an area that like companies can invest in, but it really needs to be done by the government. At this point in the interview, my audio briefly stopped recording. Susan's kept going, thankfully. So I'm going to let you know what question I asked so that you can follow. Here, I asked her this. A 450-page report from staffers for the House Judiciary Committee's antitrust panel asserts that Google and its fellow tech giants hold monopoly power and have abused their dominance in the marketplace. It also says that that hinders innovation and it reduces consumer choice while weakening democracy. Is Google too big? Uh, well, I mean, let me tell you from the position that I stand in, like the, the video spot that I'm in is incredibly competitive. Um, you look at everyone and they have, everyone 
um, whether they're a traditional media company or an internet company, has launched a video service in the last year, couple of years, uh, from Facebook, Instagram, uh, Amazon, has Twitch, Disney, Apple. Then I asked this follow-up question. So why is it not anti-competitive for Google to mandate that advertisers use its platform to advertise on YouTube? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you sort of putting my ads hat on because I used to do ads before I was at YouTube. Like, um, you know, if you look at Google and look at what was supplied, we supply a lot of the ad systems, um, you know, DoubleClick, for example, um, which enables... Um, most major publishers, probably CNN too, to be able to serve ads from anyone. Um, and so you look across all the solutions that we have we have built, which is you know actually a very competitive spot. There's quite a lot of other ad technology providers um, across the industry um, that enable a diversity of people to be able to purchase their ads on YouTube. So um, you know I think this is a, a pretty um, specific part of the overall ecosystem, but there are many ways across the board that everyone can produce, pr provide ad tech um, and buy uh, ads across the internet. And a lot of that is supplied by Google. My next question was this. Uh, so Susan, I, I read your mother, Esther Wojcicki's book this summer about parenting, and I will tell you, it helped me a ton. I mean, it has totally changed the way that I think about parenting my two children. And in the book, she writes about this marshmallow experiment that you apparently won in preschool when you were four years old. And here's how it went. You waited the longest, I guess, out of all the preschool kids to eat your marshmallow so you would get another one. And this became part of the famous, now famous, marshmallow experiment. The reason I'm bringing it up now is that I'm interested in, in what that tells us about you now, about you as a leader, as the CEO of YouTube? It has been an incredibly challenging time. There's no question about it. And I mean, I would say, look, I've done this for 21 years. And, and these are some of the hardest years. Um, when I first got here, it was everything was fun and new and, and it's hard. Um, but I, you know, you and I both have been talking about how important these issues are, and I really care about them, and I care about the future that my children are going to grow up in. And I know that because I've been here for 21 years, I, I know how our systems work. I know how to build technology systems. I know how to change them. I know how to, um, I know how to make a difference. And so I really want to do the right thing. And so I'd say the marshmallow experiment. Um, you know, I was willing to stick it out and wait and have a long-term view, I guess. Um, and I have a long-term view here that we're going to make a lot of changes. And this is these are the systems. This is the news. This is how information is going to be delivered for the next generation. And if I have any role and I can make it better, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to stick around and I'm going to do everything I can to make it better. I ended the interview by noting that Susan has said before that YouTube is committed to making sure it's on the right side of history. So I asked her whether, given the current situation that they are facing now, is she still confident that YouTube will end up on the right side of history? Yeah, well, I think, you know, you've brought up a lot of tough questions, and those are all areas where I feel confident that we have made a huge difference already. Like, if you looked at the numbers or we had third parties and they studied it, um, you know, again, you talk, talk to our advertisers, they'll also look at it and say, like, they've seen a big difference. Um, 
So like, yes, we've made a big difference. Is there more to do? Yes, there is more to do. And we're going to get that done. Um, and it's not going to be easy, but I know that I can make a difference. And that's why I'm committed to sticking it out and you know, waiting, I guess, for the marshmallow. Susan, I'm very, very grateful for you taking the questions um, as a journalist and as a mom whose kids are going to watch YouTube. So thank you. Thank you, Poppy, for having me. Thank you for the discussion. Thank you so much for being with me for this special episode of Boss Files. If you're interested in learning more about Susan and her remarkable journey to becoming CEO, listen to our 2017 conversation. You can find it in the Boss Files feed wherever you're listening and keep an eye out for new interviews to come. We're working on some new content we're excited to release soon. In the meantime, you can find me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. Thank you so much for being with us. Boss Files is a production of CNN Audio. Felicia Patikin is the senior producer. Raj Makija is the senior manager of production operations. This week's episode was produced by Nora Noose and Rachel Cohn. And a special thanks to Megan Marcus, Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, and Daniel Cantor from CNN Audio. And of course, to our production assistant, Rebecca Filgaris. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.